Hello, everyone. I'm really delighted to see you all here. Uh, my name is uh, Fawaz Jojas, and I teach the modern Middle East uh, at the London School of Economics. And this event is sponsored by our Young Middle Eastern Center, and uh, we hope to see, see you here more often uh, during our events. It really gives me uh, pleasure uh, to introduce uh, tonight's speaker, uh, Nia Rosen. Uh, you, most of you know Nia, I mean, a very famous journalist, uh, historian, uh, who has been reporting, I think, from the battlefields, and particularly in the last 10 years, from many major battlefields, from Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, Somalia, Bosnia, uh, Lebanon, uh, Iraq, uh, Syria, uh, Palestine, and what have you, really. One of the few, and I mean it, uh, one of the few uh, journalists uh, that, who dares to basically uh, brace uh, danger, and that's not a cliché, to really find out what's happening uh, in these, uh, on these uh, battlefields. Uh, and I myself and others, I mean, I envy him a great deal because he does venture out to very dangerous places. And I think more important than the physical presence, I think Nia, uh, unlike many of us, uh, he dares to speak to all uh, uh, camps. Uh, and sometime, I think, at the risk of, of uh, basically uh, putting himself uh, in the eye of the storm. Um, I don't need to tell you about uh, Nia's basically other courage or recklessness, depending on how, how you see it. But, but to my mind, as an academic, I, I really envy uh, his ability and courage to report from these places. It's not that easy. Uh, the reason why we're hosting Nia, we have hosted Nia before, uh, I think uh, some of you who know his reporting, some of his finest reportings really were on Iraq. He was one of the few American correspondents to spend time in Fallujah, in Baghdad, in other places, uh, during really some of the bleakest hours of the raging war uh, in Iraq. Uh, and he published two books uh, as a result of his uh, reporting on, uh, on Iraq. Uh, he has just returned from Syria, where he spent, uh, I think, about eight months, am I correct, uh, traveling um, in major cities and villages uh, like Dar'a, uh, Damascus, its suburbs, uh, Hummus, uh, Idlib, uh, Latiqiyya, uh, uh, Halab, as I understand, as well, Aleppo. Uh, and I think uh, not just traveling in various cities, uh, he uh, basically met and interviewed uh, opposition leaders, uh, activists, uh, fighters uh, on the ground uh, in many parts of Syria. In addition to that, I think uh, near also, and, and that's, I, I would be very much interested in, in hearing what he has to say because he also interviewed uh, army officers and soldiers and security uh, uh, forces all over Syria, uh, including uh, militias, the various militias, uh, loyalist militias uh, that support uh, the regime uh, itself. Unfortunately, um, as you all know, the title of his talk is very alarming. It's called Syria from Revolt to Civil War. Um, and I hope that uh, we, we listen to Nia with an open mind and then uh, we take him to task on whether Syria has descended into a civil war or not. Please join me in welcoming Nia to the London School of Economics.
anywhere you want. Thanks for coming. Uh, I guess I'll start with the title. The term civil war uh, is used in English all the time, but when I've used it in Arabic, um, it raises a lot of eyebrows, almost because the connotation of civil war is just different. I remember in Iraq, um, and Saad, uh, you probably agree with me, in, in 2004, I started to use the, the, the term civil war for what was happening in Iraq, and Iraqis would be very angry at me because to them civil war could only mean a sectarian war, Sunni versus Shia, and they refuse to admit that. Um, people think of civil war in Arabic more as a sectarian war, but really it's just when you have two sides in a country or more than two sides fighting each other. Um, in Arabic, people also tend to think that it somehow creates a moral equivalency and it takes away the notion of uh, a struggle for freedom or good guys versus bad guys. In English, it, I don't think it has that meaning at all. Um, so, uh, like Fawaz says, I've been in Syria for about eight months, beginning in July 2011, and visited m much of the country. Um, and it's been different than anything else I've covered for a number of reasons, in part because I was always condemned when humanizing an insurgency in Iraq or in Afghanistan or in South Lebanon or in Palestine. Um, I had trouble professionally. Um, I was condemned for sympathizing with terrorists and, and the enemy. Um, in Syria, for the first time, we find that the Western media and Western establishments sympathize with, a, with an Arab Muslim insurgency and suddenly started to care about the lives of Arab children um, and, and, and Muslims, um, which coincidentally happens to be, uh, be the policy of their governments, um, or probably not a coincidence at all. I think uh, Western hypocrisy was exposed when it came to the recent bombing in, in Gaza, where uh, um, once again the mainstream Western media took the side of Israel, more or less, um, and demonized Hamas and called every building that was bombed Hamas building, a Hamas school. Whereas really, uh, there's not that much difference between the uh, insurgency or the resistance or the Free Syrian Army in Syria and Hamas. And I don't mean that in, in a bad way because uh, my criticism of Hamas is that they don't resist enough, not that they resist. But you have in Syria um, an insurgency, a popular armed struggle, which has an Islamic color and discourse. Um, they're not fighting necessarily for an Islamic state, but they resemble Hamas in that way. And yet, we have, and we have Western media calling for arming the Syrian insurgency and condemning Hamas. So it, um, I did find myself in a strange position where, for the first time in my career, I'm kind of in the same place, more or less, as the mainstream, and that I'm humanizing an insurgency which Americans like. Um, and it's also been the most personal conflict I've ever covered, just in terms of friends I've had who've died, um, and uh, the place my heart found in Syria, uh, and, and how moving it's been uh, to, to experience uh, the, the various struggles which are going on there. Um, I just want to quickly discuss what is happening in Syria, so, sort of right now. I've been out for a few weeks now, but uh, we're in a stalemate. Um, as is becoming clear to most people. Neither side has the ability right now to defeat the other side. Uh, it's becoming inc increasingly intractable. The possibility of any kind of political settlement, certainly at the moment, is uh, non-existent. Um, and both sides are committed to a military victory over the other. They might give lip service to the notion of negotiation and settlement, but to them, to both sides, the first step in that 
would be basically surrender of the, of the other side. Um, we also have a situation where both sides are incentivized to continue fighting because they're getting support from abroad. Uh, you could say that in the beginning of uh, the uprising in Syria, both sides were largely reliant on their own sources of funding. The opposition and the early um, opposition armed groups were getting funded by Syrian businessmen inside and outside um, or just by their own resources. Uh, likewise, the regime, the government was able to support itself. Um, but now, both sides have basically run out of money. Most of the money that comes into the opposition and, and, and to the insurgency is coming from foreign states or actors within foreign states. So we still have a huge Syrian diaspora which is pouring in money and Syrian businessmen who are supporting the opposition. But we now have a lot more money coming in from either states like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, um, or, or individuals in those states like various clerics in Kuwait, for example. Likewise, on the regime side, of course, they don't have any money left. They're relying on Russia, Iran, uh, and, and Iraq largely to support themselves. So both sides are incentivized to continue a struggle, which is at the moment taking Syria uh, towards destruction. Um, the regime is able to maintain, for now at least, this, this access from Latakia, Tartus, down to Homs, down to Damascus, to the Damascus-Beirut uh, highway. That seems to be the red line for the regime. Um, uh, they, 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 there was, uh, there's been this false hope uh, of the imminent demise of, of the Syrian regime. Predictions from the beginning uh, kind of based more on faith that it was about to collapse, um, which led to various policies which have uh, turned out to be embarrassing for some governments. The Turks, for example, became, were much more aggressive than they might have been um, had they realized that the regime actually does have some potential to be resilient. And it's important to understand why it's been so resilient. Um, but as it turns out, the regime has survived. It hasn't collapsed economically yet because it's reliant. It's getting support from outside. The military has not broken up yet. Uh, there hasn't been a palace coup. So the predictions of its uh, imminent demise have been false, and it's dangerous to rely on, on faith and, and hope. Um, people thought it would be just like Egypt or Tunisia um, or, or Libya, people on both sides. Um, inside and outside. Um, but at the same time, the regime can't turn back the clock. It might not be on the verge of collapse, but it isn't able to retake territory that it lost, really, let alone restore its legitimacy and services and support that it had before the uprising. At the same time, the opposition isn't able to bring down Damascus anytime soon, uh, unless something is done to shift the balance of power in its favor. It lacks both the arms and, and, and the manpower to do that. It is slowly chipping away at territory, though, um, it does have the, uh, certain advantages. For example, Aleppo um, is very difficult for the regime to supply its forces over there. They have to go through roads which are very vulnerable to opposition attacks. Um, the Jordanian border has recently opened up a little bit for the opposition as well. So you now have a new front opening up in the Horan and in the area of Dara. Uh, so we are reaching a point where Damascus is going to be kind of under siege. It's actually surprising that the regime hasn't been able to, to crush the opposition despite the escalation of forces it's used. And when you travel around the Damascus countryside, uh, sorry, the suburbs, the, the urban uh, areas um, surrounding Damascus, it's total destruction. And yet you still have the opposition there fighting and demonstrating and organizing. And they've been infiltrating men into Damascus really since February. Um, the regime pr has proven unable to defeat the opposition, but the opposition clearly doesn't ha at the moment have the ability to bring down the regime, even if it can seize large chunks of, of territory 
Um, it also doesn't have the weapons that can prevent the regime's aircraft from uh, destroying opposition strongholds. Um, the regime has exhausted much of its resources, though. I mean, basically, in response to the July 18th bombing, which uh, killed four senior officials, there was a huge escalation of force, um, and it didn't really have much of an effect. Uh, the regime didn't go down, like many people thought. Um, so on the one hand, what we see is that the individuals who were killed, who you might have thought were important, the Minister of Defense and others, were just civil servants, and they were replaced by other people, and the institutions of security and army survived, and the regime only became more aggressive. The Christian Minister, minister of Defense who was killed was replaced by a Sunni Minister of Defense who initiated a campaign of shelling uh, parts of Damascus, and Damascus was really seized under the grip of the regime. Um, but the regime wasn't able to turn back the clock anywhere, really. The one place where it's had some success uh, temporarily seems to be in Homs, um, where before the July attack, the regime had succeeded in surrounding the opposition in the old city um, and shifting a balance of power in favor of the regime. Um, but we, what we saw in response to the, the July bombings, uh, July 18th of this year, was that Damascus was really seized by the, by the regime in a tight grip. And when you go there, you feel very much like you're in, in Baghdad um, or in any city under occupation with checkpoints everywhere, um, cars being searched, people being, being patted down everywhere you drive, neighborhoods being increasingly surrounded by security forces or, or the army, um, and people being searched when they enter these neighborhoods. Um, it reminded me very much of the situation when I first arrived in Dara in July 2011, where I immediately felt like I, this was a familiar territory. I was in an occupied, um, in occupied city with checkpoints and, and raids. Uh, and now that's, that's how they're holding Damascus. Likewise, Hama is under this really tight grip, uh, really since um, August of 2011, where you can't even breathe in Hama. And in the daytime, every, everything is pretty normal. People go to work and businesses are open. And at once, uh, I was there a couple of months ago, and once it gets dark, starts getting dark, everything closes, anything that moves is shot at, and the uh, security forces can raid neighborhoods with impunity. Um, in part, this is because of the way in which Hama was rebuilt after it was destroyed in 1982, with wide roads, um, and none of these old neighborhoods that are like mazes, which give the defending insurgents uh, an, an advantage. Uh, because it was rebuilt in a way that makes it easy to control, it's been very difficult for the opposition to resist in Hama. <coughs> Although they're criticized by the Homs revolutionaries, for example, who, who call Hama cowards for not resisting and resent the fact that um, there's been kind of an extra burden placed on Homs. Homs um, has gone uh, through uh, periods where it was the, the, maybe the peak of opposition-controlled areas, and now the city is largely under regime control or totally destroyed. When, when you uh, drive through Homs, it looks like whole neighborhoods have just been stepped on. Um, destruction worse than I've seen anywhere else, um, worse than South Lebanon in 2006. Uh, you have three or four neighborhoods in Homs which are uh, basically Alawite neighborhoods and life is more or less normal, and three or four Sunni neighborhoods where life is more or less normal, and the rest of the city just doesn't exist anymore. And the Homs countryside uh, is largely dominated by insurgents um, or loyalist militias. We have a very much a civil war dynamic happening in Homs, Hama, the countryside, and in parts of Damascus, where you, you have uh, neighborhood fighting neighborhood and village fighting village. So it's, in some places, it's no longer just um, opposition versus regime, free army against army, 
Um, but it's this village attacked that village. Um, this neighborhood shot mortars at that neighborhood. And this is a case uh, in Homs Hama, some parts of Damascus, and a little bit in North Latakia, where you've had Sunni and, and, and uh, well, Turkmen, uh, Sunni and Alawite villages fighting each other as well. Um, so, just to go back to the regime's escalation of force, uh, we've seen a, a gradual shift in the regime uh, military strategy or security strategy. Um, regime security forces were kind of demoralized in 2011. They were fighting every day, but the regime media or the pro-regime media um, was denying that anything was going on. The line was, Syria is fine, nothing's happening. Talk shows were showing stuff about cooking and um, denying that there was a problem. Meanwhile, these security forces are, are facing an increasingly strong insurgency every day, and they're dying every day. Not in huge numbers, but they're dying. And they resent the government, because if you spoke to security forces in 2011, they would complain, we could finish this whole thing in a couple of weeks if only the regime untied our hands and let us um, use the force we think is necessary. I mean, hard to believe from, from outside, maybe, that they were complaining about not being able to be sufficiently brutal. But there was a belief that the regime um, is, uh, is weak, is afraid of the UN, is afraid of, is listening too much to the Russians, um, and not crushing the opposition the way it should. Things began to change in January 2012, when they shifted from what they called the security solution to what they called the, the, the military solution. They initiated a campaign of shelling, um, chiefly Homs, uh, Baba Amr beginning in, in February, and parts of Homs be, be, became either felt to regime control or were just destroyed. Um, and this was a boost to the army and security forces. Um, and there was a gradual escalation of force in other parts of the country, culminating in June in the completion of the siege of the old city of, of Homs, the, the stronghold for, for the armed opposition there. They're still there. They've been under siege now for, for months um, and refused to surrender. But it shifted the balance of power in Homs in favor of the regime. Um, what we also saw which uh, favored the regime in Homs was that that uh, process of shelling of Homs, which began in February, led to maybe the largest uh, displacement crisis in the Middle East since 1947, and that you had maybe 600,000 people fleeing Homs in the space of one month, basically, fleeing to the countryside and to Damascus. Um, I, I can't think of, of any situation in the Middle East where we had such a, a massive flight in such a short amount of time. Most of them settled in the, in the Damascus countryside. Um, this is exactly the countryside which began to be shelled in July, June, July of this year. And they all fled back to Homs. So now you have a situation where you have three or four neighborhoods in Homs which are inhabited uh, largely by Sunnis, where in every house you have like three or four families. Schools are at three times the capacity. So there was kind of a, a strategic decision made by the opposition in Homs not to resist the regime outside of the old city in order to prevent the remaining three or four Sunni neighborhoods from being totally destroyed and in their mind then fulfilling the regime's vision of creating an Alawite city in Homs. I don't think the regime has this vision, but certainly um, on the ground, Homs was becoming largely depleted of Sunnis and dominated by Alawites. So there was a decision made not to resist anywhere outside the old city and, of course, the countryside which surrounds Homs. As a result, the regime can feel like it has the advantage there. But the Homs to Hama highway is under opposition control. And since May, no regime vehicle, or almost any vehicle, has been able to drive safely past the towns of Tilbisi and Rastan, 
which uh, haven't fallen to the regime and don't seem as if, uh, as if they can. Likewise, the regime, after July, sees a tighter control of the, of the homes to Damascus Highway. These seem to be the red lines. Um, the homes to Damascus Highway, Damascus City itself, and the highway to Beirut. Um, although these areas are under increasing pressure from the opposition as well. Um, how we got here? Um, it's part two of my speech. Uh, there, I think the uprising or the revolution or the civil war is largely misunderstood. Um, and in part that's because of uh, the opposition's own media campaign, the regime's media campaign, and of course because you haven't had many journalists operating there. Um, but there was this notion of silmia, of peacefulness, which the opposition was, was touting, and which the regime was, of course, denying that, they were, uh, that uh, this tactic of peace, peaceful revolution was being used. Um, and this, uh, silmia became such an important concept, even Obama used it in, when he praised Egyptian revolutionaries um, for using peacefulness. The thing is, Egypt wasn't a peaceful revolution. Egypt wasn't a revolution in the first place, of course. And after 18 days, the military basically uh, stopped the revolution um, from, from ever happening. But it wasn't peaceful. A hundred Ministry of Interior offices in Egypt were attacked. Police were killed. And crucially, the weapons from police stations were taken by the, op by the Egyptian opposition, um, denying the regime some of its uh, ability to suppress the uprising. And, of course, the army stood not with the people, but at least against the regime to preserve its own interests, its economic interests, um, or, or, or its grip on society. Had the army not stood against the regime, we probably would have seen an armed uprising occur in Egypt as well, because there's no such thing as a peaceful revolution. And likewise in Syria, it wasn't peaceful, but it wasn't also as armed as it, as it was today. We had a, a gradual cycle um, of es an escalation of violence, but you had almost from day one of the uprising revolutionaries or demonstrators defending themselves. This would happen anywhere in the world. The, the uprising in Syria emerged in the poorer neighborhoods of the country, in the countryside, um, and in, in slums, places where you have tough guys living, not college kids from middle-class backgrounds. Uh, anywhere in the world, in New York, in London, wherever, when police attack young, tough guys, they're going to fight back. Um, they'll, and this is what happened in Syria, basically. You would have security forces beating up demonstrators, killing a few demonstrators, and a few enraged, tough guys would grab a security guy, stab him, hold him and trade him for their own prisoners, beat him to death. And this was happening, basically, from the first to second demonstration in Syria. Just as it would happen if uh, police used brutality in poorer parts of the U.S., or as we've seen even, even uh, in the UK, um, if a favela was attacked in Brazil, you'd see the tough guys responding and defending themselves and defending their neighborhoods. And this is what happened in Syria. But this created a cycle uh, where the Alawites, for example, back in their villages, all they knew was that one of their sons was killed and is being buried today, which to them proved that Al Jazeera is lying, that the regime is telling the truth, and the opposition is lying, and these guys are all violent, and then there's no such thing as peaceful demonstrations, and therefore we have to shoot before they shoot at us. So some guy in a village in Hama, an Alawite guy, whose brother and neighbor was killed in Dara um, after shooting at a demonstration, this guy might serve in security in Homs. He's not going to wait for the demonstration which is peaceful in Homs 
to open fire at him because he believes now that all these guys are armed. So he's going to be more likely to open fire as well. And this cycle of misunderstanding and fear escalated in what to, to, uh, today is a civil war. Um, certainly, largely, you had a peaceful um, movement. Um, there was a lot of pressure um, from local leaders not to use uh, violence. Um, but you did have guys going back to their houses, taking a pistol or a shotgun. In Dara, there was one guy, I think in the, in the second Friday of the uprising in Dara, who went back to his house, grabbed an old machine gun that he had, and said, I'm going to be a martyr today. And he opened fire and he killed three security guys until he actually was martyred. Um, and you had some of the villages around Dara responding to some of the early massacres in Dara by taking up arms and attacking security forces on their way to Dara. Now, apart, I mean, obviously the opposition uh, made huge efforts to, not, to, to deny that this was, this was happening. Part of that was because they, of course, wanted to encourage people to rise up against their regime and didn't want to justify their regime's propaganda that these are all mercenaries and drug dealers and criminals and Zionist spies and masons and, and aliens and who knows what. Um, but they, it's possible, you could argue that they miscalculated, that they lost some credibility as a result of this, and they might have been better able to reach out to other groups of society had they been more honest about their use of, of uh, violence for self-defense from a very early stage. Um, now, despite the small use of violence in the first few months, it was a largely um, peaceful protest movement, and you had a cycle from March 2011 until August 2011 of basically a demonstration on Friday um, and then a funeral on Saturday in case somebody died in Friday's demonstration. And of course, with that funeral on Saturday, you'd have a demonstration, and then life would kind of go back to normal until the following Friday. And that happened week after week until August 2011. August 2011 was Ramadan, and now every day was a Friday. And that began to really shift uh, the, the, the momentum. But even in those early few months of the uprising, there was a lot more going on than just a bunch of teenagers singing songs and throwing stones. A lot had to go into pr producing these demonstrations. Um, somebody had to control the young, tough guys who wanted to be more aggressive, for example. You had to negotiate with the Islamists in your community and the leftists and the Nasserists and the communists. Uh, you had to raise money for the printing of underground banners. You had to find an underground place to print those banners and those leaflets. Uh, you had to buy camera equipment and raise money in order to pay for the broadcast to Al Jazeera, Al Arabiya, or some of the other channels. You had to raise money for medicine and find first aid trained people or doctors who could uh, treat wounded activists underground because they can't go to the hospitals. Um, you had to agree on the slogans, which uh, involved a lot of negotiating between people in your neighborhood and coordinating with people in other neighborhoods in other parts of Syria and in Qatar and with the external opposition um, in various places in Turkey or London or wherever. Um, so already in the first few months, you had to raise a lot of money every Friday. You had to um, basically create a local leadership from scratch, a civil society from scratch. Um, and um, this was kind of a, a natural evolution which can't be cheated. And this, in terms of Syria's future, they're going to benefit from. It's something which Egypt and other places didn't have. The duration of the revolution certainly produced tens of thousands of martyrs, but it's also produced a new class of local leaders who otherwise wouldn't have existed. And the, the, the people who basically emerged in March, April 2011 are very much the same people leading the uprising today. They're not known outside. People have been interviewing various clowns of the opposition outside the SNC and people who, who've never mattered, never controlled anything inside, never delivered anything inside. 
but um, they called themselves leaders. And as a result, they were focused on uh, by Western media, whereas really the people who have been providing humanitarian aid, leading demonstrations, leading the armed opposition, have all been inside. And they were people who were nobody before the uprising. They could have been a vegetable seller or a lawyer or a doctor or a businessman, but they never played any significant role politically. Um, but you had this uh, process which you just can't cheat of a local leadership emerging. But now Ramadan became much more intense. Every day you had demonstrations. You had to raise money for the lighting, for the loudspeakers. Um, you had constant clashes now with security forces in much of the country. So you have to coordinate with your local tough guys to block the, the alleys in the streets to the demonstration, um, to throw stones and Molotov cocktails or open fire to delay the security forces from arriving so that you can have time for all your guys to flee safely and to take all your expensive equipment because these loudspeakers and cameras all cost a lot of money. Um, you have to make sure you have electricity for all that stuff too. And this is day after day, and now you're meeting people every day, and you're running away from security every day. So you're getting to know each other and trust each other. So a process was created where now you had the various local leaders um, both emerging and uh, proving to each other who can be trusted, who has actual organizational ability, service provision ability, um, very much kind of a, a practical democratic process taking place. And August was much more violent than any other month uh, to date. I mean, I, I arrived in Syria in July 2011, and I was in Homs, and you could hear gun battles all night long, every night, in Homs. Um, the first armed groups in Homs actually emerged in May of 2011. Uh, but what you saw as a result of Ramadan was several things happening. First, everybody assumed that the regime has to fall in Ramadan. It's a holy month, so logically it just has to happen. We're all going to demonstrate every day, so it has to happen. Um, we're going to come out of mosques after the Tarawih prayer every night. Um, there's just a lot of faith in, in the notion that the regime would fall by the end of Ramadan. Of course, it didn't fall. The regime had their own plan for containing the uprising by surrounding neighborhoods and dividing them. So you can have your little demonstration in every neighborhood, but if you try to unite those demonstrations into something large, that's when uh, they open fire on you. So by the end of Ramadan, there was a real sense of despair and, uh, and, and depression. And then uh, Tripoli fell in Libya. Um, which boosted the spirits of people. I was actually in Bab Amr uh, in Homs tonight that uh, Tripoli fell in Libya, and people were chanting for the first time, the people want a no-fly zone, the people want uh, um, NATO. Uh, it legitimized the argument of those people who were calling for foreign intervention. And they thought, well, if it happened in Libya, surely it'll happen for us. We've had many more dead. Um, it also legitimized the notion of an armed opposition, because... While Libya fell largely thanks to NATO bombing, you did have an armed opposition in Libya as well. Um, so you had that happening, and thanks to this daily interaction, you had in September, after Ramadan, the creation of the first revolutionary councils. Uh, the most successful example of which was the Homs Revolutionary Council, which was formed in, in September by the marriage of three local opposition organizations in, in Homs province, and very quickly it became almost like a state within a state. Um, they had committees dealing with media, so they had correspondents all over homes sending information every night. Um, they had medical committees and stockpiles of medical aid and, and doctors, um, humanitarian committee uh, to feed the poor. By January of 2012, the Homs Revolutionary Council was feeding about 16,000 families, the families of the poor, of dead, of staff, of people in prison. And they had a security committee to coordinate the increasingly powerful insurgency in homes. Um, other provinces tried to follow the model of Homs, but Homs was the most successful. 
and in fact to date remains the most successful. They're the ones who've had the strongest relationship um, with foreign powers, whether the Americans or the Saudis or the Qataris as well. It's one of the reasons why Homs is called, has been called the capital of the revolution. Um, in terms of the insurgency, Homs became the most um, well-organized and well-funded province as well. Um, Homs also became maybe the capital of the Shabiha, you could say. Uh, Shabiha's opposition term for the loyalist militias. Of course, they don't call themselves that. Well, they do now to a certain extent. Um, but you had a parallel emergence of, uh, of pro-regime militias um, in response to the emergence of anti-regime militias. They call themselves popular committees, kind of uh, stealing the term that was being used by Egyptian revolutionaries for the popular committees they formed. Part of it was just genuine fear. You had Alawites in particular terrified that the Muslims were going to eat them up. This is not a new fear. This goes back to the, even the 1980s. Um, real or not, the Alawite community has a fear that if Bashar falls, it's the end of the community. When they speak, it sounds very much sometimes the way Jews in Israel speak, where uh, if, if we don't fight the terrorists, then uh, we'll, be, we'll be pushed into the sea, that kind of thing. It's the minority fear. I mean, uh, it in some, in some ways resembles Protestants in Northern Ireland as well, Serbs in Bosnia. The fear of annihilation um, allowing you to, to, to basically commit almost any offense you want and to ignore your own crimes and focus only on um, the perceived crimes of the other side. But in Homs, the popular committees became almost uh, independent of the state. They were able to raise their own funding thanks in part to kidnapping or, or stealing, and actually ended up clashing with the Syrian army um, quite often because the Syrian army perceives itself to be the army, um, the, the state, fighting terrorists and mercenaries, etc. Um, and as a result, when the loyalist militias, the Shabiha, would attack certain neighborhoods or steal from them, uh, there were incidents of the army, the Syrian army, the state army, actually clashing, uh, clashing with them. And then you also had some embarrassing incidents occurring, embarrassing for the regime, like the Hula massacre in May 2012, um, which caught the regime by surprise. It was committed by local popular committees in some of the Alawite villages which surrounded Homs, but the regime in Damascus wasn't aware of it. Um, and as a result of this and a few other massacres and, and the, the general unruliness of the popular committees of Homs, you saw a process of these militias being institutionalized. Um, this is also a result of the manpower shortage of the regime. And you have Sunnis defecting from the army or not showing up for the draft. And of course, you have thousands of, of security men and, and soldiers being killed by the opposition. Um, so you're, you're suffering from a huge manpower problem. And they increasingly began to um, hire the, the popular committee men, the Shabiha, either as reservists or give them contracts in, in a way which resembles like the, the Blackwater approach of the regime or almost like what the Americans have done, tried to do in Iraq and Afghanistan and hiring local militiamen and assigning them a contract with a local security officer. Um, so you might be assigned like so many checkpoints in the, the Homs countryside um, or in the Hama countryside uh, or, or you might be sent as reinforcements for the army um, so, for example, when the regime had began to have the upper hand in Homs, uh, there was not as much role for the Shabiha of Homs, so they got sent up to Aleppo as reinforcements. And you had a lot of funerals 
and some of the Alawite neighborhoods of Homs for the slain um, local popular committeemen. The, the way locals refer to them is, is the groups. Uh, Ali is working in the groups. Majmu'at, which is, uh, um, kind of means shabiha. Now, some, of, some loyalists have adopted the term shabiha actually as a badge of pride. Um, and I've seen demonstrations for, pro, not demonstrations, I guess, pro-regime rallies where they've marched through opposition areas and shouted things like, we are the shabiha, screw your freedom, that kind of thing. Um, but the actual militiamen don't call themselves shabiha. And in many cases, they view themselves as defending their neighborhoods from terrorists, from uh, Salafis, from Al-Qaeda. Um, true or not, th- these perceptions are important to understand because it's one of the reasons why the regime has proven so resilient and that it has a core of support which the opposition has failed to win over. And it's not only Alawites. Alawites are like 10% of the population, but the regime... Uh, wouldn't have survived were it only depending on 10% of the population. Even when you look at this, the most senior figures in the regime, you have quite a few Alawites, but the Minister of Defense is Sunni. Uh, the National Security Advisor, Ali Mamluk, is Sunni. The Security Advisor to the President, Hossam Sukkar, is Sunni. The heads of military security, political security, and state security are Sunni. The head of Air Force security, the most feared one, is Alawite. But you also have Sunni generals in Air Force security, um, one of the, the Air Force security generals dealing with um, East Damascus in the countryside, one of the worst areas um, in, in the city, is a Sunni from Idlib. Um, the, the, the star of the regime's army right now is actually Druze, um, General uh, Issam Zahreddin. Uh, so it's not an Alawite regime versus a Sunni population yet. Um, and of course you have some Alawites who are in opposition, um, where they're engaging in demonstrations or on the humanitarian aid side of it, or activism, um, but it's, the regime is still able to rely on the support of quite a large part of the population, um, if not not, the, not perhaps in the majority of it, but certainly a significant part. Aleppo city, for example, um, is not exactly pro-opposition. Um, all right, time to close up. Um, I guess... Uh, to close up, uh, I'm happy to take questions and, and, and uh, know what, what you find interesting. There's this bizarre, contradictory um, life in, in, in Syria right now where some parts of the country are very normal. Um, and you wouldn't really know that anything's going on. Like I said, Hama during the daytime feels quite normal. And then at night, it's the scariest place on earth. And if you leave your house, you can get shot at. Um, parts of Damascus, people are still going to restaurants and, and enjoying themselves and shopping while you can hear maybe a kilometer or two away, neighborhoods being pounded constantly. Even in Homs, um, you can be in an Alawite neighborhood, and 100 meters away, there are tanks firing at the old city. And people just have gotten so used to it, they just ignore it. Um, I was in, uh, in Jobar, which is uh, in a Damascus suburb just before the city starts, um, a, f- a few weeks ago, and a helicopter was firing down at Jobar. So uh, we were in a traffic jam. I was sitting in a taxi, and we could all watch the helicopter firing down at Jobar. And up ahead of us is a checkpoint. And the taxi driver tells me to put on my seatbelt. Uh, so I'm, you have, like, traffic cops on the way to, on the, on the Damascus to Homs Highway with radar uh, stopping people for speeding. Um, at the same time, as the, you, you have the worst destruction I've ever seen, worse than what I've seen in, in, in uh, Beirut after 2006 or in Fallujah where entire neighborhoods just no longer exist. 
And that's true for the Damascus countryside, for many villages which nobody even hears about in, in, in the countryside. Um, what I think we're going to see is this continuing, basically, to conclude. Um, there's no reason to think that the regime is about to fall, and clearly no reason not to think that the regime can defeat the opposition. And it just seems likely that this, will, this could last for years, which is horrible to imagine. But unless uh, something happens to shift the balance of power, if the regime loses money, it can no longer pay for its employees or for its security forces or the diesel fuel for its armed vehicles. If the opposition gets an infusion of sophisticated weaponry, which allows it to maybe seize larger chunks of territory, um, that can make a difference. Uh, but short of that, it, this just seems like something which can last for a very long time unless it's ended through major massacres of one side or the other, which until now we haven't seen, but I fear are increasingly likely. It's not yet a sectarian war. The whole Salafi thing is exaggerated, um, but certainly it's get, getting more and more important. I guess there's one last point I want to make on, on Islam and the revolution, or Islam and the uprising. Um, there's a lot of fear in the West of Salafis, and in part... The whole Salafi angle of the opposition is um, maybe overemphasized because journalists can really only get to Idlib and Aleppo, the Aleppo countryside controlled by the Free Army, which happens to be like the most conservative Salafi place in all of Syria. But if you visit places in Dara, in, in other parts, in, in Homs, you see that Salafis play a much uh, less significant role. General kind of Islamists play a large role. They dominate the, the insurgency and, and the opposition. Many people who didn't pray before became devout but they haven't embraced a Salafi jihadi kind of philosophy the way we saw in Iraq. So while they hate Shiites and Alawites more than anything, you ha we haven't seen any propaganda against Christians, against Ismailis, against Druze, and other minorities. And while the hatred of Shiites is very much a religious one, justified as it's been done for the last 10 years, especially um, on religious grounds, the hatred of Alawites is more a political one because they all support the regime and they're all shabiha in the, in, in the eyes of, of, of those who, who hate them. Um, but the opposition was kind of pushed into a gradual Islamization and even a Sunnification, uh, thanks in part to the regime's own tactics. They were denied any public space other than mosques. Uh, and while we, we, you would see sometimes Christians and Druze and others inside a mosque waiting for the demonstration to begin or, or waiting outside the mosque for the demonstration to begin, um, if you're a secular person or if you're a non-Muslim, you might feel less comfortable um, emerging from a mosque and some of the language which was used uh, might have also made you feel uncomfortable if you're a leftist or a secularist or, or, or a minority. Um, but certainly in the beginning, the emphasis of, of the, the chants and the songs was a non-sectarian one. Um, but you couldn't escape the fact that most of the opposition was Sunni because most of the population is Sunni. Um, and if you're in a demonstration being shot at, it, it helps to believe in God or martyrdom in paradise. I know I've been to more than 100 demonstrations and every one I was like this. Um, because uh, I'm an atheist, but uh, um, there's a very powerful feeling when you're inside a mosque and people are shouting, uh, the, the prayers end and people shout takbir and response, Allahu Akbar, and it builds up almost like you're in a rugby match or uh, preparing or, or troops beginning to battle and they're chanting and it's louder and louder and more and more powerful and they all pour out of the mosque knowing that they're likely to get shot at. If you, if you don't believe in martyrdom and paradise, it's much more difficult to be in that first few rows of people uh, pouring out of the mosque. Um, 
So many people who weren't religious before became gradually more religious, and they say, we used to date girls, we used to drink alcohol, now we don't do that anymore. Um, and of course, now that the money is coming more and more from, from the Gulf states, uh, and that's coming with some influence as well, and you already have a pre-existing template for kind of jihadi videos going from Iraq uh, in Afghanistan and Palestine and elsewhere. Um, so if you're some Syrian armed opposition group, you're not, you're not going to take the time to make up your own new kind of um, media. You're going to adopt the ones which already exist, especially if the people producing your media tend to be based outside of Syria, maybe in Saudi Arabia or Qatar or Kuwait or something. So you're going to have a much more Salafi-sounding media wing of the opposition than you actually find inside, where you, you may have guys waving the so-called Al-Qaeda flag uh, and then going back home and drinking beer. But there's been clearly a, a, an evolution um, within the opposition. You can see the, the, the chants and songs and demonstrations becoming more and more um, Islamic-sounding. Um, the sense more and more of people that uh, this is a war against us as Sunnis. And I guess that's the last example I'll give. Um, there's a girl I know uh, from um, Mazif, an upper-class family in, da in Damascus. Um, she dressed in the way Syrians call it sport, basically like a Lebanese girl, I guess. Um, I don't mean that in a negative way. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, hair exposed, tight clothes. Um, she, she'd drink, she'd date guys. Um, but she'd go to demonstrations. Um, and she was very, very anti-regime. Um, she ended up uh, smuggling weapons for an insurgent leader from Duma, from a very conservative neighborhood uh, in, in Damascus. Um, they used her because she basically looked Alawite in, in the minds of security guys because she had long hair, which was exposed, and tight clothes and makeup and all that. So she could go past checkpoints. Um, and she was always complaining about these religious guys in the uprising and how she doesn't like them and they shouldn't have a role, and the guys with the beards. Um, and then security finally caught on to her, and she had to escape to Jordan. And I spoke to her a few weeks ago, and I was really surprised by the shift in her language. She said that uh, she now respects them. Um, she's returning to Islam. Um, and this is the war against us Sunnis. Uh, and I was uh, shocked to hear someone like that using that language. But it's very much a sense, more and more, among uh, Syrians that this is a kind of a, a Shia campaign against Sunnis, that, um, and there's a real revival. People used to speak about a Shia revival, but I think, if anything, in the last 10 years has been a, a Sunni revival. Anyway, I've uh, probably talked too much. and no. Take questions. Thanks, Neil. So, we'll take, uh, shall we take four questions at a time? Sure. And then, you know, hopefully we'll take as many questions as possible. Uh, please come around. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, my question is, in your travels and in your field research, have you found any evidence of uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, uh, the Quds forces, presence in uh, supporting the regime or its security forces, and the same for Hezbollah? Thanks. Please. Please, short and precise questions, no statements, please, because our time is really precious and limited. Um, recently there have been attempts to bring the various opposition groups together and as I understand it, there's been some success um, in that area. As a result of that, it seems to me there is more support by Western powers, Britain and the US and so forth have welcomed that and then there's a possibility as a result that they, the Western powers, may give more tangible support to these groups. 
or to the one group that are bringing it all together. I'm wondering what you think about how successful that group is and what's likely to happen as a result. Thanks. Please. Um, that was a fantastic insight. I think that's probably the best I've ever heard. Um, do you think the SNC can actually play a meaningful role? Hi, I just wanted to ask how you managed to get access to all of these places without being detained, being accused of a spy and told to leave, uh, to be a spy. That's a good question. <laughs> Shall we? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, last question first. I've been detained a lot and I've been accused of being a spy a lot. Uh, by all sides. Are you? Um, <laughs> without an employer, yeah. Um, I'm, I am from the uh, Ends Justify the Means School of Research. You, you lie and lie and lie to get access. You say whatever you have to say to get access. Um, the goal being to find out the truth, and there's usually no other way of doing that um, than bullshitting people. And that, whether they're the Mahdi Army in Iraq, an American public affairs officer um, in Iraq, Taliban, um, the, end, uh, the ends justify the means. Um, but, but do you really have to lie to get access, though? I mean, is this, is this really, I mean, is it really essential? Or is well, that, it depends on the context, yeah. but um, <laughs> often people don't want you to see things, which it is actually it's against their interest for you to see them. Um, you need to, yeah, so, um, certainly governments, and it's uh, true for any government. Um, they have an interest in denying you access, whether it's the um, American government in, in Iraq, um, who, for example, put me on a censored list uh, um, to not get embedded, because uh, I think they called me, said I was against the mission or something like that, um, or any other government. Um, the Israeli government, when I was working for Al Jazeera, asked me, why are you working for the, the, the terrorist uh, news organization? Um, but also for militiamen, um, most people who have power, especially if they're committing offenses, things which you know are wrong, have an interest in denying your access. And maybe lying is too harsh a word, but yes. you need to at least make them feel comfortable, make them think that it's in their interest to talk to you. Convince the Taliban that um, it's in their interest to talk to you. As challenging as convincing the Syrian regime, it's in, um, there's a tendency among all people to, to not want to talk to journalists. Um, and you do whatever you've got to do. Um, evidence of the Quds Force in Hezbollah. The uh, Iranians are certainly helping the regime in terms of technical advice at a senior level. But I think the notion of Iranians on the ground shooting people has always been uh, kind of silly because there's just no reason. Syrians are perfectly good at shooting other Syrians. Uh, there's always this myth of Iranian snipers as if um, there was some complicated skill required in standing on top of a building and shooting at demonstrators. Um, and in fact, uh, something that the media does wrong, and I guess um, in part it's based on people inside um, making claims. Anybody with a gun shooting at people is called a sniper um, just because he's on a rooftop. Uh, not if he's still using a sniper rifle or anything. A anyway, so you, have, you do have Iranians at a very senior level providing assistance on uh, communications, monitoring, that kind of stuff, but not on the ground fighting. Um, that's for sure. Hezbollah... I can say for sure that Hezbollah offered a minimal amount of training for some Shia 
village defense, neighborhood defense kind of committees, what, what opposition would call Shabiha in Homs. You don't have that many Shias in Syria. You have several hundred thousand. But they happen to be, to be mostly concentrated in Homs and around the Seyda Zainab Shrine in Damascus. Um, and you have, in, in that area of Seyda Zainab, quite a few Salafi groups, or let's say Sunni extremist armed groups. Um, and there's a fear among Shias, whether they're Mahdi army guys in Iraq, or Hezbollah, or Iranians even, that the same thing that happened to the Samara Shrine in Iraq in 2006, where it was blown up, will happen to the Seyda Zainab Shrine, which is one of the most important Shiite shrines. Um, and you already had, next to Seyda Zainab, the Hausa, the Shia religious t- uh, seminary for Imam Khomeini, from, from that school of, of, of Shia Islam. And it always had revolutionary guards protecting it. Um, so you always had some small Iranian presence there. And you've had, since the insurgency grew strong in Damascus, the influx of some Iraqi Shiites from, from, from Baghdad um, and some Lebanese Shiites coming in, in, in their words, to protect that shrine. Likewise, in Homs, you have many, many little Shia villages and a few Shia neighborhoods. And some of those uh, popular committees received basic training by Hezbollah. Uh, they say it's like a week of learning how to point your gun, basically, and how to organize yourself. But in terms of Hezbollah fighting on the ground, I think the only place we've seen that is uh, in the Lebanese-Syrian border area by Qusair, uh, a place which happens to have uh, Shias of Lebanese descent living in Syria. So there's also kind of a family relation. And some of it is, is of strategic importance to Hezbollah. They have storage depots on, on the, the Syrian side of the border. But I think the role of Iran and Hezbollah has been exaggerated until now in terms of actively fighting on the ground in Syria. <coughs> Hezbollah and other Shia actors in Lebanon have kind of acted to secure the, the border. So it's not only Hezbollah. You also have some of the Shia clans in the Bekaa region who have actually clashed with the Free Army on the other side um, and helped secure the border on behalf of the Syrian regime. Um, the opposition coalitions. <coughs> the IO, I mean, by January of this year, the opposition stopped talking about the SNC. They used to have high hopes for them, but by January of this year, there was a lot of resentment. These guys failed to produce weapons or money or humanitarian aid or foreign intervention. And you, you'd hear opposition leaders inside complaining that the SNC guys are all sitting in five-star hotels and air-conditioned rooms uh, outside. And they're going to come in here and steal our revolution from us. After we win, they'll come in, uh, like carpetbaggers and, and seize upon our victory. Uh, actually, that's not what the carpetbaggers did. Anyway, there was a resentment of them. Um, this new coalition was ostensibly formed to be more inclusive of, of internal groups. If you speak to people inside, they will tell you that it was the Turks and Qataris and Americans kind of bullying them into, into selecting a few people who were not necessarily popular with their revolutionary councils of Homs or of Idlib. Uh, but we're going to go along with this fiction that it's more representative so we don't deny, so the West doesn't have one more excuse to delay giving us weapons or assistance. Um, I think there's been way too much focus on these external coalitions and all, this, and all the international side of, of this whole struggle because the real struggle has been inside. The real, the real leadership of the opposition, whether the insurgency, the demonstrations, the humanitarian effort on the part of the opposition has always been from guys inside with links to relatives or friends or financiers outside. At first Syrians, but now also states. And they've been very good at forming relationships with Turkish intelligence, with Saudi intelligence, with Qataris, even with French and Americans. They're not waiting for all this stuff to happen in terms of coalitions being agreed upon. 
the civil war in Syria continues, the struggle continues, and neither side is, is, is paying much attention to all this. I think it, in terms of signals, the regime might perceive this as a signal that the Americans are now serious about providing more aid to the opposition, although I'm skeptical of, of, of if that's true. The French have been very aggressive in providing aid before this even happened, um, including what they would call non-lethal military aid, like bulletproof vests and night vision goggles and things like that. And of all the Western countries, the French seem like to be the, the most eager about going to war um, with Syria, with the regime anyway. Um, the French, the Western vision for what this new coalition would be is that we're, we're going to get it recognized by the Arab League and then get it recognized by the UN General Assembly and we're going to call it the official Syrian government and start channeling aid through this organization. But aid is already coming in. You already have agreements being struck every day between large blocks of groups inside uh, and Qataris and Saudis and wealthy businessmen in the Gulf and wealthy Syrians. You have massively wealthy Syrians who, pro who are providing assistance. So nobody's waiting for this plan to even happen. You have the Qataris are backing the, the military councils on the ground. The Saudis are backing the notion of creating five separate fronts. Um, the, the Turks are, are meeting with insurgent leaders and have been making deals with them for a long time now. Libyan weapons have been coming in via the Qataris distributed by Turk Turkish intelligence for a long time now. So I think that um, it's almost too late for all these outside actors to really make much of a difference when the people inside haven't waited and are not going to wait. Any more questions on this front? Any other questions? Have we done another round? Please. Thanks for being here. Hi, uh, thank you for your talk. Um, you mentioned the different levels of support between sort of Sunni, Alawite, and Shia uh, communities. Could you talk a little bit about anything from the Christian neighborhoods? Thanks. Please. Gentlemen. <coughs> Hi. Um, people uh, seem to be uh, more hesitant and have more reservations in embracing, quote-unquote, uh, the revolution in Syria. And some people say that's because the opposition are more prone to committing atrocities. Uh, and I, what I want to ask is how justified are these hesitations or reservations? And if they're unjustified, how unified is the opposition? Please, the gentleman in the back. Hello. I was wondering if you can give any information on uh, the Kurdish involvement and whether it has been um, evolving uh, in the time that you, you were there. Any questions from this side? No questions? Please, Saad, come back to you. Yeah, thank you. Well, I'm, I'm, my only concern is the humanitarian situation, the death toll. Is it really as big as we hear, or some, as, or some sources say that they are not that big because they have been exaggerated? What was your view when, when you were there? Thanks. Shall we? The humanitarian situation, I guess I should have commented more on that. Um, apart from the death toll, you have uh, tuberculosis, which is like four or five times what it used to be, and all kinds of other communicable diseases, just because you have huge amounts of poor uh, displaced people living in terrible conditions without any kind of sanitation um, and very little access to medical care, that kind of thing. And the death toll, it makes sense to me that it would be in tens of thousands. I mean, when we hear the death toll, we hear the opposition death toll. We don't even hear about the uh, regime security forces. Do we have any idea what the uh, 10,000? I've heard the numbers from... In July, mm -hmm. the uh, number for official members of the security and army mm -hmm. who were dead 
was about 8,000. That, um, that was the official number. And that wouldn't have included the uh, militiamen. Who are, I mean, those guys are dying like flies every day. I mean, literally, you, you go and you drive through Alawite villages and neighborhoods, you can't avoid funerals. I mean, I, I've gone to meetings there, uh, and f- uh, they'll bring a dead body, and the fire, opening fire into the sky will start. Um, and they actually use the same language that the opposition uses about our martyrs, God is with us. Um, I don't like the term cult of martyrdom, but if you were to apply that to the opposition, you certainly have exactly the same thing happening on, on the, the, the regime side in, in terms of their belief uh, in their own martyrs. You can't escape funerals when you go through loyalist uh, neighborhoods, especially Alawite ones. For 10% of the population, they probably suffered the highest percentage of casualties of their own men, actually. Um, and I, I think the opposition does sometimes exaggerated death tolls, but many places haven't even been reported about. You have villages, um, for example, east of Hama, Agaribat, and all kinds of, east of Salamia in Hama, Agaribat, and a bunch of little Bedouin villages that are getting bombed by planes every day, and this is happening in many parts of the country. So much, and even the opposition isn't reporting about these places because um, it's hard to get information. Um, so I, I think it's plausible to say it's in the tens of thousands. The exact number almost isn't really important. Um, and there's no reason to think it's going to stop anytime soon. Uh, the Kurds, it's not my area of expertise, so I don't like to say too much about it, but um, they're a very divided community. You have the Syrian regime backing um, one wing of the, of the PKK, but you have Kurds fighting uh, alongside the opposition. You have Kurdish Shabiha in Aleppo fighting uh, opposition militias, and you have other Kurds who are just seizing upon this opportunity um, much as they did in Iraq, um, to secure their own uh, not autonomy, I guess, more or less. Um, and if these Arabs are killing each other, it's kind of a good opportunity for us. In part, it's because why would you want to take part in what they perceive as a Turkish project? Um, but I think that, that I mean, one reason why I personally haven't focused too much on the Kurds is I feel like they're almost... A, um, a sideshow to the, to the larger struggle within Syria. They're kind of in, in one corner. And the regime has been very careful not to provoke them too much. So you've had many demonstrations in Kurdish areas, just like you've had, for example, in Druze areas or even in some Christian areas. But the regime is always very careful not to create martyrs in those areas and avoid the cycle of funeral and then demonstration and then more martyrs and turning the population against it. Um, and this approach has worked quite well for the, for the regime in Sueda, for example, as well, in, in, the, in the Druze areas. Um, but I have a limited knowledge of, of the Kurds. People often think that the Kurdish uh, issue is the most important one for the Turks. But the Turks also have a huge uh, Alevi, Alawite population they're worried about. And today I actually learned that there's a Turkasian population, which is a, uh, a core element of the Turkish state. And Turkasians in Syria, even though they're Sunni, are actually part of the security apparatus and very much pro-regime in general. Um, Anyway, I don't know too much about the Kurds, so I don't want to talk about what I don't know much about. The Christians, um, I guess one similar reason why I didn't talk too much about them, their numbers are often exaggerated. Let's say they're 5 or 6% of the population. Um, I haven't heard anything anti-Christian, even from the most extremist elements of the opposition. Um, there's almost kind of a sympathy with them, an understanding of why they haven't joined us. Or at most, you might hear some disappointment about why they haven't joined us. But you don't see anything anti-Christian the way we saw in Iraq from an early stage, where both sides are basically killing Christians. 
um, which is a testament maybe to the fact that we don't have like a Zarqawi phenomenon in Syria. You have Christian Shabiha though in, in one area, in Wadi Nasara, the countryside of Homs. Um, but you also have Christians who have been very brave on the side of the opposition and Christians who are supporting the armed opposition, even financing it. I have a Christian friend who was martyred in Homs in May um, in Chaldea. Um, but as a community, they're just not very involved one, in one side or the other. Um, they haven't been targeted by either, either side, really. Um, and they're not a dominant element in the security forces. Um, so if you're an opposition supporting Sunni, I, don't, I hate to reducing to that sectarian level, the people shooting at you or arresting you or beating up in prison are probably not going to be Christian. And they're not perceived to be pillars of the regime either. Um, if they've been victims, they've been victims of the generalized violence. So like the Christians of Hamidiya in old homes all fled, but they didn't flee because anybody specifically was targeting them, just because bombs were falling and bullets were flying. Um, Christians in Aleppo have been kidnapped for money, but not because they're Christian, but just because they have money, which is a problem, um, and, and maybe they don't have a militia to protect them. Um, and this increasing crime is also a huge uh, problem I forgot to talk about. But even Sunnis in Aleppo are being kidnapped. Um, the Christians, we, we do see a flight of Christians from Syria, which is tragic, much of what we saw in Iraq. And once that starts, it's kind of hard to turn back the clock because you, um, you can't find anybody to marry your son. Your social clubs are, are, are empty. Um, your schools are empty. So your whole community is basically being the, 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 um, pulled abroad once that flight starts, which is what happened in Baghdad. Um, and certainly it's happened in Homs City, where you have very few Christians left. You have in Wadi Nasara, this rural Christian area in Homs, um, many, many thousands of Christian IDPs who fled from home city. Uh, but Christians also get visas to the West much easier than Muslims. Uh, so it's been easier for them to flee Syria. And once you leave, you're probably never going back. One more round, final round, shall we? Sure. Four more questions, please. Hi. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask another humanitarian question. I understand that the ICRC and also the Syrian Red Crescent have been providing humanitarian services in Syria. I just wondered if you'd um, observed any of that or if you had any comment. Please. If you would criticize the media with one point, what would you say? Only one? <laughs> well, he is part of the media. <laughs> Please. You have a question here? No? Good question. And what was the question? What's the, the real story of attacking Palestinians? Who attacked them and why? And mm -hmm. Please. Um, I mean, clearly there is lots of fear among the different sectors. And should that be explained by both sides? Do you think there is still room for dialogue in Syria? All right. <laughs> ICRC and the Syrian Arab Crescent, um, two very different organizations. The Syrian Arab Crescent had a very bad reputation even before the current um, crisis, um, during the Iraqi refugee crisis. The Syrian government didn't allow very many NGOs to operate, so, many, so when it came to the hundreds of thousands of Iraqi refugees operating there, the international community, those wanting to provide assistance, had to rely on the Arab, Syrian Arab Crescent, which was very much controlled by the state, and there were many problems of corruption was a huge problem and, and still is, but also the politicization of it. 
So today, people in the UN complain that you have Red Crescent members stealing supplies and selling them, for example. You have Red Crescent people who've died supporting the opposition. You have Red Crescent officials who are working on behalf of, their, of regime security. Um, the chief obstacle is just access. And that some of the roads are so dangerous that even if you have a well-intentioned Red Crescent sort of local uh, body, they can't even get to deliver the aid. Alawites complain that only Sunnis get the aid. Sunnis complain that the regime only gives the aid to Alawites. Um, so the UNHCR, which is one of the organizations providing assistance, and ICRC are largely dependent on, on SARC, on the Syrian Arab Crescent, um, because they need to get permission from the foreign ministry to, to go around the country, and they don't usually get that, or it's just too dangerous for their staff to, to get around. Um, so there isn't too much aid going on, especially to displaced, and that's in like more than a couple of million of, of displaced people inside. Um, and most of, the, most of them are not known to the international organizations, or even to SARC, to the Red Crescent, in terms of their location, their needs, their numbers. Um, whether they're Sunni or Alawite or anything else, uh, they're not really getting very much. You do have the emergence of a local civil society, though, on all sides. Um, a lot of interesting things have happened, even on the loyalist side. You have, um, in Alawite and Christian areas, the creation of new organizations um, to, to provide assistance for, for their poor or for their wounded. Actually, I forgot to say this. You have a, a strike right now going on in Salamia of the Shabiha. The, the loyalist uh, militia operating in this, this little town in east of Hama City went on strike for the last two weeks and they withdrew from their checkpoints. Um, I mean, the, the re revolutionary kind of spirit is even affecting loyalists. They criticize the regime in a much more aggressive way, maybe for not kicking enough ass, but still they criticize it. Um, they complain about corruption. Uh, they organize themselves. There's even... There's been a lot of dialogue, to, to get to the dialogue question. Um, from the beginning of the, of the uprising, in Homs especially, we had local prominent, uh, what people in Arabic call wujaha, like the prominent individuals from the Alawite community, the Sunni community, meeting and negotiating and trying to prevent a civil war from happening, which was successful for like the first six months in Homs. But it, without any government participation, just local prominent individuals forming a committee to try to maintain the peace in their city. Um, so in terms of the humanitarian provision side of things, that's also happened. Obviously, it's much more organized and massive on the opposition side because the needs are much greater. But they have to operate almost like terrorist cells because if you're providing assistance to displaced people, for example, in Hama City, there's 15,000 displaced families, uh, mostly from the homes countryside. If you're providing assistance to them, you can be charged with ter under terrorism laws uh, in Syria. Um, there's huge, huge needs to answer your question, and they're not really being addressed by anybody. Um, in terms of criticizing the media, the Western media anyway, um, there's been a, I mean, there's many, many problems, lack of Arabic speakers, um, laziness, um, lack of desire to uh, maybe spend too much time with dirty poor people. Uh, you have very, very many brave journalists who've risked their lives, much braver than me, under shelling and shooting in places like Aleppo. Um, but there's a general tendency in Western media to try to meet with the English speakers, um, with the exiled politicians, self-appointed leaders, whether Riyad al-Assad of the Free Army, who never controlled anything but a tent in Turkey, or the SNC leadership. Um, and also a tendency to extrapolate, I guess to, to get specifically into Syria, 
there have been limitations on Western access. I've been privileged um, to have a, more access than most people. Um, but so, so you've had Western media able to access initially the homes countryside in the, in the bordering Lebanon, and when that was cut off, the, the Idlib and Aleppo countryside. But from that, they've extrapolated and tried to draw lessons and, and apply that to all of Syria, which has often been very misleading and confusing. Um, I think, in general, there's been a, a lack of uh, desire to take too many risks and a, a lack of focus on the regime as well, to understand who is the regime and why are they staying in power and who are their supporters. Um, and I, my last criticism is just that it, I've, it's ex find it extremely hypocritical that for the first time in the 10 years I've been working as a journalist, Western journalists are sympathizing with an Arab Muslim insurgency merely because it happens to uh, coincide with the foreign policy of their capitals. Whereas when it came to Iraqi resistance, or even more importantly, the Palestinian resistance, you see very, very little sympathy um, for armed Arab Muslim men, or dead Arab Muslim children, for that matter. Palestine, the, the, the oh, oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. Palestinian uh, um, fighting? Most Palestinians in Syria sympathize with the uprising. Um, for a variety of reasons. In part, there's a whole Sunni angle, of course, uh, um, and they marry Syrians. They because they're equal under the law, they basically experience all the same things that any other Syrian would experience, which means that they would have the same grievances um, or loyalties that most Syrians would have. Um, you had armed Palestinian factions involved with the opposition from an early stage in Latakia, in the Ramel camp, in Dara. Um, and in Homs, in Homs you had an armed Palestinian group during the siege of Baba Amr actually helping the local insurgents and helped smuggle wounded people out into the Palestinian camp of Homs. Um, but you also had Palestinian Shabiha and Palestinian armed factions working on behalf of the regime. Um, as a general rule, if you speak to them, they would usually say, we've learned from our mistakes in Kuwait and in Lebanon not to be directly dragged into a conflict um, and be scapegoated. And in fact, we saw this for the first time in Lebanon in 2008, in the May events, when both sides, when March 8 and March 14, were pressuring the Palestinians to join in, and they refused to be dragged into the, to an internal conflict. In general, we see Palestinians refusing um, to be dragged in in this case as well. We do see a shift in the regime's language about Palestinians, uh, which sounds more and more the, like the language of Lebanese Christians in terms of demonizing them for being ungrateful. In part, that's a result of the Hamas betrayal of their regime by pulling out and basically supporting the opposition, if not publicly, uh, certainly privately. Thank you, Nia. I, I forgot to mention that uh, Nia is a fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. I mean, and that's, I, and also his most recent book published in 2010 called uh, Aftermath, uh, following the blood uh, shed of America's wars uh, in Muslim land. Please join me in thanking Nia for a very interesting. Uh,